chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. And I love this chapter because it talks about how we can have victory and freedom over the power of sin. But I have a question I'd like to pose to you tonight. In fact, I believe this was a question for prime timers a few months ago. And uh, it kind of made me think as well what my answer to this question is. What do you look forward to most in heaven? As you look to, you know, I mean, sad news, but if you have enough birthdays, eventually that's where you're going to end up. Well, hopefully if you're saved, amen. Uh, if not, we can have a different conversation tonight and settle that. Uh, but what do you look forward to most in heaven? When a person works an eight-hour day, does anybody work eight hours anymore? But when a person works a day, whatever that is, and receives a fair day's pay, that's called a wage. When a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, that is called a prize. When a person receives recognition for long service or high achievements, that's called an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, he can win no prize and he deserves no award, yet he receives it anyway, that's unmerited favor. And that's what we're, we mean when we talk about the grace of God. We don't deserve what he gave, and yet he gave it anyway. Isn't forgiveness of sin a wonderful thing? We've all needed it. We all continue to need it. And he continues to forgive. But far better than the forgiveness of sin is the avoidance of sin. As a youth pastor, I had in my office a saying that I lived by, it's better to have a fence at the edge of a cliff than an ambulance on the bottom. And uh, I always, that, that was my goal, to be that fence on the edge of a cliff. It, it, we all need the ministry of the ambulance at the bottom after people have fallen in their life. But I want, my mission and my goal was to keep them from falling over in the first place. And uh, yet, it is a great thing to have a forgiveness of sin. But following God's plan to do right in the first place is, is uh, preferable to that. How much pain, how much heartbreak, could be avoided in our life if we overcame temptation instead of yielding to it. And the best testimony is one that has not been marred by sin. I remember as a child one time, we had an ex-mafia drug dealer come to our church in Philadelphia, Missouri. That was about as foreign to us as if a Martian had came uh, to our church. But he talked about how he'd been saved out of that life of crime. And I was honestly a little depressed I, my testimony stunk after his, hearing his testimony. Man, he was talking about the dregs of sin that God dragged him out of. And my pastor wisely, the next time he had a chance to talk to us uh, young people in the youth group, he, he wisely set that attitude straight. He says, the best testimony you can have is you never do those things in the first place. And that is the best testimony. So question, uh, the question I asked, what do you look forward to most in heaven for me, that's a pretty easy answer because I have, I've said this before and I still feel this with all my heart. What I look forward to most is no temptation. I can't imagine living life with no temptation, just being able to enjoy the presence of Christ. So let's look at it. Romans 6, 1 uh, is where we're going to start. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us uh, were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? 
Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we had been planted together in the likeness of his death, we should be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that is, the body of sin might be destroyed, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Think about that verse. That is a heavy verse. We have been buried with him by baptism into death. So we can walk in newness of life. We've been planted, verse 5, planted together in the likeness of his death. We should also be in the likeness of his resurrection. All right, going on in verse number 7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. That's what I like to call in the Bible a duh statement. A guy can be a raging alcoholic, but when he is dead, you can put beside his dead body a Jack Daniels, a bottle of Jack Daniels and never touch it. Because if you're dead, you're freed from sin. And we are dead to sin, spiritually speaking. All right, verse 8. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised up from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 11 is where head knowledge becomes heart knowledge. He's already told us we're dead to sin. That does us no good until we reckon ourselves dead to sin. We'll talk about that in a minute. Likewise, uh, verse, oh, we just read that. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither let ye your members, uh, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Victory over the power of sin. Father, I pray you'd help us tonight. Oh, there's so much to cover here. I can't even begin to scratch the surface, but I pray that it might give something, some tools that we can use to avoid sin in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So God tells us in his word that we can have victory over the power of sin. Now, would you agree along with me that the power of sin is very real? Have you ever in your life said you're not going to do that again? Whatever that is in your life? I'm not going to do that again. I've lost my temper for the last time. I have complained for the last time. Uh, by the way, if you want to unleash all hell against you trying to live for God, come up to the altar and make a decision. I remember, I, I've dealt in my life with anger, especially as a younger man, and, and had to deal with that. And I remember many times I come to the altar and beg God for forgiveness. I'm not going to do this again. And then I, I don't even have to get to the back door, and there are things happening to make me angry. Amen? Am I talking to somebody else who understands that? I mean, everything, if you make a decision for God, and Satan will make sure you have a myriad of ways to break that decision. The power of sin is real. Whatever your struggle is, and we all have different struggles. We have sins that easily beset us. Mine is different than yours. Uh, yours is different than mine. Why don't we all take time and go around in a circle and everybody give us your... No, we won't do that. That's between you and God. But it, it is a real thing, and it pulls down believers and destroys their testimonies for God. 
If we're honest, all of us would have to admit that we struggle with sin. We struggle with temptation. One of the first verses we teach new converts, 1 John 1.9. I love that verse. For if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but it doesn't stop there, praise God. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. This is forgiveness. Uh, There is forgiveness when we confess our sins. Hallelujah for that. But for some people, it seems like 1 John 1, 9 is like a rabbit's foot they keep in their pocket. I'll sin, but all i got to do is just confess it and go on. Uh, Whenever they do wrong, they kind of pull it out and hope that God will just make everything all right again. But 1 John 1, 9 uh, is uh, this, this idea of confession is confess and forsake. It's not just I did wrong, but actually doing something about it. First John 1 John 1.9 is the dividing line between good guilt and bad guilt. Is, good, is, is guilt a bad thing or a good thing? If you ask Oprah, it's a bad thing. Guilt is always bad. But I don't think guilt is always bad. If my son were to steal $100 out of my wallet, which is a joke, there's hardly ever a $100 bill in there. But if he were to, let's theoretically say there was a $100 bill in there and he were to steal that out of my wallet, I would want him to be guilty. Amen? I'd want him not to be able to sleep and not be able to eat until he makes that right. That's good guilt. There's also bad guilt. There's guilt when Satan beats you over the head with something that, uh, that, that you maybe made a mistake maybe even years ago and he just continues to beat you over the head with that mistake. That's the wrong kind of guilt. How do you know if it's good guilt or bad guilt? 1 John 1, 9. That's the dividing line. Up to confession, up to 1 John 1, 9, it's always, always, always God. Satan doesn't want you to feel guilty for your sin. You deserve that. They had it coming, whatever reason he gives. That's, uh, it's always God before 1 John 1, 9. Now, you come to 1 John 1, 9, you confess it, he forgives it, he forgives you and he cleanses you. Now, you still feel guilty. Why? That's always Satan. 100% always Satan. Because God says he takes your sin, he removes it from you and he remembers it no more. He puts it in, I like Vance Havner said, he puts it in the deepest sea and puts up a no fishing sign. Okay? He doesn't, he doesn't let that sin ever come back. It's gone. But the guilt sometimes continues, and that's the wrong kind of guilt, when Satan uses your sin to make you feel worthless and make you feel like you'll never be anything for God. But as I said before, forgiveness of sin is great, but better than that is following God's instruction in the first place and avoiding that sin. The church in our day needs a renewed focus on the process of sanctification and the power over sin. Jesus makes this available to us. When someone accepts Christ as their Savior, they are immediately uh, have now dealt with the penalty of sin. Because now uh, Jesus took that penalty on the cross. They accept his payment on their behalf. They accept him as their Savior. They're a Christian now. And the penalty of sin has been taken care of. And uh, as we grow in Christ and as the process of sanctification begins, that delivers us from the power of sin. Romans chapter 6, we just read it. Sin does not have power over us anymore. Now, understanding the process of sanctification is vital in overcoming the power of sin in our life. One day, it hasn't happened yet, we'll experience glorification. That delivers us from the presence of sin. We've been delivered from the penalty, from the power Unfortunately, not the presence of sin yet. It still reigns because we have a flesh, and our flesh wants to sin. So let's uh, look at a couple of steps here. First of all, refuse to presume on the grace of God. Salvation 
by grace is a wonderful doctrine. But even in the early church, there were some believers that perverted the doctrine of grace. They took the grace that they had freely received and they used that grace and applied it to let them continue to live a wicked life. Now today, that is rampant. You don't have to live a certain way. You don't have to dress a certain way. You don't have to be a certain way. There's nothing you have to stop drinking. There's nothing you have to stop smoking. Jesus just loves you the way that you are. I had a girl tell me recently who was uh, who's doing things that she shouldn't be doing. If God wouldn't want me this way, he wouldn't have made me this way. That's dumb thinking, okay? Uh, because he doesn't want us to live after the flesh. He wants us to live after the spirit. So... Be grateful for the grace that abounds and that God is willing to forgive us when we sin. Uh, thank God we don't have to earn our salvation or keep it. We couldn't do that. But God is not pleased when His grace that cost His Son so much is used and is perverted to justify a sinful lifestyle. Many Christians have developed the attitude they can live however they want to live. In fact, in the 90s, I remember lots of books came out uh, about grace. They encouraged uh, throwing off the restriction of uh, uh, all the, the rules of Christianity and just living freely under grace. Just know that God loves you the way that you are. Well, He does love you. It doesn't mean He likes the things that you do. People took grace and adopted it and, and, and adapted it, I'm sorry, to accommodate their particular lifestyle. Understand, grace is not licensed for us to live however we want to live. Grace frees us from the shackles of sin. And when we talk about grace freeing us, it's not grace freeing us from, from uh, the standards God sets for us. It frees us from sin so that we might live for God. Romans 6, 18, we didn't go quite that far, but look what it says. Being then made free from sin, you became the servant of righteousness. All you're doing is changing masters. You once served the devil, now you're serving God. We just become servants of a different master. Only this master loves us and wants the best for us and wants to, wants to uh, do only good to us. Many people are not interested in coming to church and hearing Bible-based preaching and on the standards of behavior. They're missing the important point of salvation. God saved us not so we could do whatever we want, but that we might grow in grace and become more like His Son. Romans 8, 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Many people have adopted today what you could call accommodating theology. Basically, they redefine God's word to accommodate to their lifestyle. We see it all the time today. Hey, I don't like it that Steve can't marry Bill. So I'll just redefine what marriage is, and then I can do what I want to do. They just redefine God's laws. I think I want to be a woman. It's not fair they always get to choose the restaurant, is it? That's just not fair. I think I want to be a woman. So I'll just redefine what gender is. You see what we're doing in a society? We redefine uh, God's terms, and then uh, we can do whatever we want to Two wrongs never make a right, and doing that is always going to lead to destruction. Grace, number one, is not a license to sin. When Paul said, shall we then continue in sin? He was speaking here of willful sin, obviously. Grace does not allow us to intentionally do things that we know are wrong and expect God to look the other way. That is not grace. It never, and as I said earlier, it's not, it wouldn't be love if he did that for us. It's not love that lets us do destructive things and continue to get away with it. 
Grace is not permission to sin or do whatever we want to do. Galatians 5.13, For brethren, you've been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. When we left, uh, we left the Amish, I heard over and over, in fact, the conversation I had with my grandmother, she said this over and over to me when I was trying to explain the decision we made. You just claim this once saved, always saved, so you can do whatever you want. And that's the idea that they had. But, and I remember, I had a flash of genius at 18, didn't happen often, but uh, I said, you know what, you're right, you're right, you're right. And, and she is. We, grace does come so that we can do whatever we want. You know what we want to do? Serve God. The love of Christ constraineth me, he said. Because of all that Jesus Christ has done for me, I now want to serve him. So in a way, yes, we are saved uh, so that we can do whatever we want. We ought to want to serve him. But it does not enable us to feed our own f uh, fleshly and selfish desires. Some take what the Bible has to say about grace and try to make it mean what God never intended. God hates sin with a holy wrath. And it is ludicrous to suggest that he would ever give us something that would allow us to do what he hates. Grace. Grace is not so we can sin. It's not a license. Number two, grace is a motivation to serve. True justification will produce true sanctification. Somebody who has been saved will produce the fruit of that grace in his life. A person in gra uh, growing in grace is just becoming more like the Lord. Uh, just taking on, read, we, we read Ephesians 5, eight, no, no, um, Galatians 6 talks about the, uh, Galatians 5, 22, I think. All right, did I get the final, the, the fruits of the Spirit? That's how we see those things growing in our life. A person growing in grace is becoming more like the Lord. If we study the Word of God, we see that grace always produces godliness and serving in the heart and life of a Christian. Grace is the inner working of the Holy Spirit in the life of believer to bring us to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Sometimes, by the way, that grace brings things in our life we don't want. Romans 5, or Romans 8, 28. Well, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. We, we know that verse. We don't so often look at the one right after that where it talks about how he conforms us to the image of his son. So he uses those things for the good of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. Grace motivates us to serve others. Peter said this in his epistle, uh, chapter 2, verse 16, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. The Bible never shows Grace bringing less holiness or less service, it always brings more. Grace brings a more dedicated life. Christian freedom is not about pushing the boundaries to get as close to sin as you can. It's, to, it's about serving and growing closer to the Lord. I used this last week, and I think I've used it before in church, but the sumo wrestler principle. Uh, I talked about this in discipleship last week, I think uh, we were talking about this, but you've, you've seen sumo wrestlers, the... Um, with the diapers and the weird hats that they wear and big fat guys. Um, and, uh, they, they, the, the idea they have this big mat and then you, you know, they start at the opposite ends and they boom, 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 crash together, you know. And, uh, the idea, the way they get points is to push each other off the mat. And so the sumo wrestler principle in the Christian's life is that if, if I not, don't want to be pushed off this carpet here, then I'm going to stand as close to the center as I possibly can, and that's where they want to be, in the middle. That's where they run together to the middle. 
How silly would it be for me to stand right on the edge hoping not to get pushed off? And sometimes in our Christian life, that's where we want to be. We want to listen to music just as far as to the world as we can. Uh, teenagers have a way of pushing these things. Why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? We want to do just as get as close to the world as we can, and we still are within the within the the mat, but we're we're just as close. To, I don't want to be as close to the world as I, I want to be as close to God as I can be. And so that's why we we uh, stay in the center, and we don't uh, try to get as far away from God. We try to get as close to God. Grace motivates us to encourage others. Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. As a Christian, growing in grace is always encouraging to be around. Isn't he? Or she? They're great to be around, people that are growing in grace. We cannot have victory over sin, number one, if we pervert the grace of God. If we use grace as a license or grace, God loves me. No matter how I am, uh, it doesn't matter what you do on the outside, just matters what's in your heart. That's a lie from the devil, too. I mean, yes, God looks at the heart, doesn't look at the outside, looks at the heart, but the heart's going to, you're going to be on the outside what's on your heart. I used this illustration with my teenagers years ago because some of the girls babysat. And uh, so they, I said, if, if you're babysitting someone's kids at their house and you hear a noise at the door and you go look out the peephole, and you see a guy with a ski mask and a crowbar out there. Do you open the door? Why not? God looks on the heart, not on the outside. You see how silly that is? That's silly. Because what's on the inside comes out of us. And so, yes, we need to focus on the inside primarily, but that doesn't mean the outside doesn't matter. All right, so grace gives us the freedom to do right, not the freedom to do wrong. Number two. Uh, he gives us the picture of baptism here. The word, word baptize literally means to plunge, to immerse, to dunk. Baptism is not just a nice thing that the church dreamed up uh, to have a ceremony. The proper idea and understanding of baptism is what it, and what it represents is crucial to overcoming the power of sin. Baptism is a representation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ also the sanctified life. It is a powerful symbol of what it means uh, when God gives us victory over the power of sin. Uh, number one, we identify with his death. That's going down. All right. We, we are buried with him in, uh, buried with him in, in the likeness of his death. And then we're raised to walk in newness of life. So that being put into the water is a picture of burial. That's why we do what the word means. We immerse. Anybody who has been sprinkled has not been baptized. They've been sprinkled. They've gotten a little wet on them, but they have not been baptized because that's not what the word even means. And besides, who buries somebody, lays them on the ground and sprinkles a little dirt over them and calls them buried? That's not a picture of burial at all. Uh, immersion is the only thing that can be considered true baptism. When we're baptized, we identify ourselves with the death of Christ. So baptism pictures that fact that on the day of salvation, we're really, you could say, we're grafted into Christ. Practically speaking, we are dead to the old nature. Look at verse number 6 again. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Oh, it's such a wonderful thing. As a Christian, we're not, sin doesn't have this dominion over us anymore, this power. The unregenerate man, our old nature, was put to death when Christ redeemed us. Often we find in churches, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, how the 
a perverted view of grace uh, as liberty is taught. And that's not what the Bible has uh, for us at all. Consequently, in those churches, often immorality and anger and gossip and all those things abound uh, because they uh, they have a perverted idea of what grace is. The same thing can happen in a Bible-believing church if we do not reckon ourselves dead to sin. We're dead to it. When we receive Christ by faith, we're made a partaker of salvation through the Holy Spirit. The old man and his tendencies are getting Jesus Christ. Going under the water in baptism symbolizes that your old nature was crucified with Christ and put to death. The old life is past. We now have life. Amen? And that's a wonderful thing. We're not bound by it anymore. And then we identify with his resurrection. Everybody I have ever baptized is thankful that we identify with his resurrection. Otherwise, they'd just be held under the water. See? If we wouldn't identify with the resurrection, we'd have a bunch of drowned Baptists, okay? Uh, we go down in, in burial, and then we come back up in resurrection, raised to walk in newness of life. So baptism pictures the resurrection of Christ as well as his death. And that's why Paul said we have to, we should walk in newness of life. We're not supposed to live like we used to live. Why? Because that self died. He was buried. Now we're raised to walk a new life. Second uh, Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So baptism shows us the path to gain victory over the power of sin. If Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead, we would have no promise of victory over sin. But, but that's how he gave us victory over sin. Resurrection power is what defeated death and sin forever. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.55, O oh, death, where is thy sting? O oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. So the fact that, that Jesus rose from the dead took that sin, uh, that sting of sin and death from us. What a wonderful thought. Just as Jesus rose to a new life, we have the promise of victory over sin in our new life with him. Now, we've got to go fast here. Uh, the, the third point I want to look at is reckon yourself alive to God. Look at verse number 11. To say the old man is crucified and dead is one thing. To reckon the old man is dead and crucified is an entirely different thing. To reckon means to credit to one's account or to bring in line with. It's really, it's a financial term, reckoning is. But look what it says in verse number, uh, numerical, I'm sorry. Uh, likewise, reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We reckon things every day. I was driving back from Missouri last evening and night, and uh, two, on several occasions I had a reckoning. I drove by a cop on the side of the road, and I had a reckoning with my speed, Okay. I, you, I did what, don't act all holy and then thou, you do the same thing. You look at your speedometer when you drive by a cop. Whoop, am I going too fast? And of course, I never was. I was always at or under the speed limit. But, uh, we have that reckoning. When we make a deposit in the bank, you reckon it in your, your account ledger. However you do that, whether it's electronic or whether it's still in a checkbook, uh, we add that to the balance. We reckon that total. Reckoning means that it uh, really, really has to be done on a daily basis spiritually. Paul did this in 1 Corinthians 15, 31. He says, I die daily. It's a daily reckoning he had. Either we believe that victory is ours and we act on it, or we do not. And we won't have that victory. 
Each day we need to put to our account, in other words, reckon, and apply to our life the fact that the old man has been crucified. We reckon it to be true for ourselves. In other words, I'm telling you, this is the, this is the difference between defeat in temptation and victory. When temptation comes and say, whoa, whoa, I'm dead to that. I don't do that anymore. It's a reckoning. I found it interesting. There's a book that I have called Atomic Habits. I've talked about that before. Not written by a Christian, but it's a phenomenal book about uh, just explaining how to take on new habits and change behavior. And one of the things that he said that I found fascinating was that when a person quits smoking, it's a big difference in saying, I don't smoke anymore versus I'm not a smoker anymore. You think that's same thing. We hear it, but there's a big difference in the two. One is saying they don't do an activity anymore. Another one is taking on a new identity. I used to be a smoker. Now I'm not a smoker anymore. That's an that's what reckon is right there. It's just a re it's reckoning. I used to be a slave to sin. I used to have to do these things. I don't anymore. I'm reckoning myself dead to it. And we have to do that or we're not going to have power over sin. We're dead to sin because of the cross. Uh, we reckon that we're already dead to sin. When we put that truth to our account, then we can have victory. When we live without a consciousness of the cross and what Jesus did, we can't triumph over sin because there's a, uh, there's no, there's no power in the old nature unless we let it have the power. You understand that? The old nature has no power unless we give it the power. So Christians aren't reckoning the power that they have with what the, the grace that God gives us. The old nature was beaten. It was defeated by Christ on the cross. But that was not enough. Uh, we also have to live with the new life that Christ gave us living in us. Christ living in you is the victory over the power of sin. The same grace that saves us enables us to live for Christ by the faith of the Son of God. So we daily reckon ourselves to be dead to sin because of the cross. We are dead to sin positionally and alive to Christ. At the cross, both the penalty and the power of sin was dealt a death blow. Again, not the presence, but the penalty and the power of sin. So my question, are you living with that truth every day? Have you reckoned that to be true in your life? When we yield, or when we love God supremely, we yield our lives to Him. When we love self supremely, we try to change what the Bible says to justify the way that we act. There are only two choices on the shelf, serving God or serving self. We've heard that for years. That's how true that is. At the center of a life of grace that overcomes sin is a yielded heart. We just do what God says, don't do what he says not to do. Uh, I'll close with this even though I have much more. But Matthew 18, verse 8. This is a bothersome text. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands and two feet and be cast into everlasting fire. <clears throat> and if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than to have two eyes and be cast into hell fire. Now, if you think Jesus didn't preach strong, that's a strong message right there. He commanded us to cut out our eyes, cut off our hands and feet, 
if they cause us to stumble. Now, what this is, I believe, is an example of Jesus' use of dramatic figures of speech. I don't think for a minute that Jesus was advocating literal, physical uh, self-maiming. What he's advocating here is a ruthless, moral self-denial. We deny ourselves of these things. And so we are to reject sinful practices so resolutely that we would die to them or put them to death. Believe I believe what Jesus is saying here is that if your eye causes you to sin through temptation through the eyes, watching the wrong things, viewing different things, pluck it out. That is, don't look anymore. Act like you're blind. You, you are blind to it, really, uh, because we have died to that as the old man. And so act as you've already plucked out your eyes and flung them away, and you can't look if you're blind, can you? So that's how we're to act. If your hand or foot causes you to sin because of temptations through your hands or the things that you do, or, the, or your feet, the places that you go, and if th then he says cut them off effectively. That is, don't do it. Don't go there. Act as if you cut off your hands and feet, and you can't do it if you're crippled, can you? That's the idea we're to have. It's a, it's a ruthless self-denial. That's the best way we can live our life for Christ. The cross not only makes us dead to sin, it also makes us alive to God. Any man that is dead to sin can be made alive to Jesus Christ. All of us were born with a spiritual death sentence. Romans 6, 23, uh, the wages of sin is death. But then Jesus gave us that gift of salvation. And uh, we are have the blessed promises of the word of God to have victory and freedom in our life. Uh, Acts chapter 4. I think it's interesting what the leaders of that day noticed most about the disciples. Uh, remember, they, they noticed they were unlearned and ignorant men. So, have you ever heard a preacher and you think, I think I have learned about him that he is unlearned and ignorant. That's what they thought about them. But, in chapter 4 verse 13, they saw they had been with Jesus. That's a wonderful statement. Uh, their, his life had rubbed off on them, changed their conduct. Uh, the life of God is our birthright as his child. We have taken on his nature. Yesterday, I w I'm named for my uncle. I got my first name. In fact, I know what my name would have been if I hadn't have been, happened to be born on my uncle's birthday. My name, you want to know what it is? My name would be Roman. That'd be a cool name. I would be six feet tall if my name would have been Roman. Sometimes I wish it would have been. But I was born on my uncle's birthday, so I was named after him. And uh, yesterday at my dad's get-together, I saw him for the first time in about 15 years. I haven't seen him in a long time. And I, I was actually pretty shocked. Because basically it's like my grandfather came back to life. He looks just like my grandpa. And I haven't seen him in a while. But the last time I saw grandpa, he was about the age that my uncle is now. And my uncle is just like he appeared right in front of me. Why? Because he has his nature. And, and I have my father's nature. And, uh, and soon, whew, soon I'll look like my dad. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I love him, but I don't know. Uh, because we have... I have his nature. So what do I do? I look like him. I act like him. I talk like him. I do things like he does them. My wife loves that I have my dad's nature. Uh, the, 
the Amish that she can't get rid of in my, in my life. But uh, I have that nature that, that holds on. So we have, we have the divine nature of God. We ought to take that on. We ought to talk like Him. We ought to look like Him. We ought to, uh, people ought to look at our lives and take note that we have been with Jesus. Whew, that would be good. We don't have to be learned. We don't have to be super educated or super talented. They weren't. The men there weren't. They said they're unlearned and ignorant. They're a bunch of hillbillies, they said. But they did see they were with Jesus. That made an impact. You know what God did with that group of hillbillies? He turned the world upside down. That's what the book of Acts says. He took those men and turned the world upside down. Why? Because they reckoned themselves dead to sin, dead to the old life. They walked in the newness of life with the Lord Jesus Christ. They allowed him to use them and uh, they, they realized their victory over sin and they lived a new life. I don't know what temptations you're dealing with in your life, but I do know that if you're breathing, you're battling. And if you say, oh, preacher, I'm not battling, then you're just giving in. Because you're either going to be battling or losing. Because we all battle. Every one of us battles the flesh. I've never yet met a perfect person. And you haven't either. None of us are. Some of us get real close, but we're not perfect, okay? I meant to say some of you. I'm sorry. Uh, but one of the greatest resources that we have in the face of temptation is a close relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. My counsel to you is that you bring your need to Him. Whatever that need, that trial or temptation is, lay it before the Lord. He has promised us grace through temptation. He has promised you that you will not get any temptation that is too great for you. And He's promised you that with every temptation there is a way of escape. I call it the, the exit. The problem is sometimes we don't take the exit. We just keep on the road. There's an exit there. He promises it. We just don't get off. I'm telling you tonight, put your blinker on. Get off. Get off on the exit. Because it's there for us and He promises uh, take him up on this offer that he gives us in Romans chapter 6. We do not have to live under the power of sin anymore. Reckon yourself dead to it. Father, I pray you'd help us. So a whole lot of things that we get from this chapter, but I pray you'd help us to put it into our life and practice it. Help us, Father, live holy and consecrated lives for you so that we too, we might not turn the world upside down, but I sure would like to turn Brookings upside down. I sure would like to turn South Dakota upside down. Help us to live for you and make an impact, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.